Um, this morning we're going to be in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah in the Old Testament. This is actually the shortest book in the Old Testament, which means this will be the shortest message. No, preachers don't make promises like that for good reason, okay? So Obadiah, uh, if you're, if you're in your Bible, you get the book, the book of Psalms, keep going to the right. Psalms go past the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. You'll hit Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then Obadiah. In my Bible, it only takes up one and a half pages. One and a half pages is 21 verses, but I think we'll see, even though it's a small book, it has a major message that God wants us to hear this morning. Disaster, 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 disaster. You might think I'm looking at my phone and reading the news right now, right? Um, disaster after disaster and uh, problem after problem, judgment after judgment. This is only the fourth book in the Minor Prophets. And already we kind of see that same thing coming up again and again and again. Disaster after disaster, judgment after judgment, plague after plague, sickness after sickness, destruction after destruction. So what an encouraging message this morning, right? Um, well, I'll tell you this. The, the book of Obadiah, out of the 21 verses until we hit about verse 19, it's all disaster. And so you might say, where is the hope in that? Where's the hope this morning, Marcus? I didn't come here to hear about disaster. Well, uh, let me tell you, God's word, all of it speaks powerfully to us. And so this morning, uh, yes, there are, uh, there is disaster, but I want you to know that in the book of Obadiah, there's also great hope for each one of us. So there's really two parts to the message of this morning. We're going to do two things. One, we're going to kind of just get an overview of what God is saying through Obadiah. Just look at the message of what Obadiah is throwing out there. We're going to look at that kind of as an overview. And then the second part of our message where, where I really want to spend some time is talking about the character of God that's revealed in this book. Because I think God is trying to tell his people, he's trying to tell us something really important about himself this morning, and we don't want to miss it. So will you join me as we as we jump into this? What we want to do this morning uh, is really just kind of start off in this first part of our message by asking these five basic questions. Now, I don't know if we have any journalists out here, uh, but, you know, anytime you go to do a news story, uh, these are the five questions you ask. Who, what, when, where, and why? And then, of course, how, but I think the how gets unfolded uh, as we look at all this. So uh, we want to ask these questions and just try to understand what in the world is Obadiah talking about. And, and let's start with that first question. The first question is who? And really, I want to introduce you this morning to a group of people called the Edomites. Okay, the Edomites. This is not some kind of parasite that attacks your body. Okay, the Edomites are a people group that lived in ancient, uh, at the same time as ancient Israel. And we are introduced to them here in verse 1. It says this, Obadiah 1. And you'll notice uh, in a book like Obadiah, where there's not even multiple chapters, there's only one chapter. You just have Obadiah 1, Obadiah 2, Obadiah 3. So we'll just go by verse like that. Okay, so verse 1 says this, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. So who's this Edom character? The nation of Edom. God says, let me tell you what's about to happen to Edom. So we're talking about the Edomites. Who are these people? 
Who are these people? Well, there's a long history in the Old Testament of who the Edomites are. And uh, we want to look at that this morning. And uh, really, this goes all the way back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Because in the first book of the Bible, we're introduced to the family of Abraham. Abraham uh, and his wife, Sarah, have a son named Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, have twin sons, and their names are Jacob and Esau. Okay, so the descendants of Jacob become the Israelites, what we call the people of God. The descendants of Esau become the Edomites, and they're the ones we're talking about this morning. So these are the distant relatives of God's people. In fact, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. But if you go back to Genesis, here's something very interesting. You find out that even before they were born, these two guys didn't get along. Uh, Genesis 25 verse 21 The children struggled together within her. This is telling us the story of what was happening inside uh, Rebecca's womb. The children were struggling within her. Genesis 25, verse 23, the Lord said to her, she actually cried out to the Lord and said, God, what's happening? I can't bear this. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So even from before these two brothers were born, they didn't get along with each other. If you go on and read Genesis chapter 25 and verse uh, chapter 26, you read the story of how uh, Jacob takes advantage of his older brother Esau. He takes from him his birthright. Um, He then steals the blessing from him. Uh, Basically, these two brothers do what brothers do, except it's really in an egregious way. And so they don't get along. It leads to a lot of strife and fighting. And, and I was reminded this week as we were driving to visit some family, brothers in the backseat of a minivan don't get along, okay? <laughs> that happens. But guess what? This is a whole nother level. These guys didn't get along. And it ends in Genesis, uh, towards the end of Genesis, uh, with Esau saying to his brother Jacob, I'm going to kill you. I'm actually going to kill you. And he was making plans to kill his brother. And you can read the rest of that stories in Genesis story in Genesis. So these guys didn't get along. Well, guess what? The descendants of Jacob and Esau carry this forward. If you skip ahead in the Bible to Numbers chapter 20, when God's people are leaving Egypt, uh, they've been set free from their slavery in Egypt. They come to the land of Edom to their cousins and they say, hey, we want to pass through. And the Edomites say, "Uh uh-uh, you're not coming here. We're not going to help you. All right. So they don't get along there. You go ahead a little further to first and second Kings. Uh, this is during the time of King David. The Edomites and the Israelites are always fighting. We see King David ruling over them. Then a little later on, they rebel against the Israelites. They don't get along. Their familial roots don't tie them together. And then you get into the prophets, which is where we are today. Obadiah, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Psalm 137. What you find out is the way this whole story ends, what we're about to read here in Obadiah, is uh, when the nation of Israel goes through a really, really hard time, guess what the Edomites do? They don't come to help. In fact, they come to hurt. And they take advantage of God's people, and we're going to see that in just a minute. So who were the Edomites? They were Israel's distant relatives. And yet, if you read through Scripture, you're going to find out they are never portrayed in a positive light. They're always the adversaries of God's people. So that's the people group we're talking about. What does God declare? That's the second question. Who are the Edomites? Number two is what? What did God declare in this book? So what is God trying to say about the Edomites? Let's read verses one through nine. I already read verse one. I'm going to just read the end of that. It says, rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. 
Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how have you not been, how have you been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have been driven to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So what does God declare? If you read those nine verses, and we're going to look at them a little bit, God is basically declaring total destruction, disaster, disgrace. The nation of Edom is going down. Total destruction is what's predicted here. Um, And what is that going to look like? Look ahead to verse 18. Actually, here, before we go to verse 18, look at verse uh, 5. It says, If thieves came, if plunders came by night, how you've been destroyed. Would they not only steal enough for themselves? In other words, there's a picture here that's given. Just imagine that somebody comes to your house to burglarize your house and they break in. Oftentimes, what are they going to take? They're going to take the TV, the electronics, if you have some cash laying around. But they're probably not going to take your clothes, right? They're going to leave your clothes behind. They probably leave your furniture behind. They're going to leave the things they don't want. But God says, Edom, when you're destroyed, it's not going to be like that. There's going to be absolutely nothing left. Verse, uh, let's see, end of verse 5. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? In other words, when they go out to harvest a field and they pick the grapes, they're always going to miss a few, okay? There's going to be a few left behind. But God says, Edom, when you're judged, it's not going to be like that. There's not going to be anything left over when I'm done with you. Total destruction. Skip ahead to verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So God's making an announcement here about what's about to happen to the Edomite people. He says they are going to be totally destroyed. And he gives another picture here, this idea of of chaff burning. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture. When I was uh, growing up on a farm in Kansas, we would harvest wheat every June or July. Actually, fireworks were a major hazard during the month of July if your wheat wasn't harvested because it could start this straw on fire. Sometimes uh, farmers would actually go out and intentionally light the field on fire to get rid of the chaff so that they could plant more crops. Uh, that's actually not recommended anymore as a, as a healthy farming method. But here's what happens. If you look at that picture, you see what's left behind those flames. Absolutely nothing. Ashes, dust, nothing left standing. So again, God gives us three, at least three really powerful pictures of what this judgment is going to be like for Edom. What does God declare? Total destruction. Total destruction. 
But there's something else he declares. We're going to get to this at the very end. He also declares in verses 19 through 21, restoration for his people. Restoration for his people. But we're going to get there in a little bit. So who, what, when? When is our next question. When did this happen? Well, there's kind of two sides of this question. The the question is, well, when did Edom commit her crimes? And then also, when does the judgment on Edom take place? Because here's what happens. In those first nine verses of of Obadiah, what we see is God saying, here's your sentence. Total destruction. You're going to be destroyed. And then he goes back in verses 10 through 14 and says, here's the indictment. Here's the reason why I gave you that sentence. And he lists out all the things that they did. And, And when did these crimes happen? Um, I'm going to read these to you in just a second, but before I do, I want to show you another graphic. Uh, this is just as a way of reminder. Here's a little bit of Israel's history. Okay, so at the top of this chart, you see the 12 tribes of Israel. They were united under King David. Uh, most people, if they know anything about Old Testament history, you know King David was the greatest king. He wrote the book of Psalms. Uh, it was a bright spot in Israel's history. And even with him, it wasn't perfect. Well, guess what? It only lasted about 30 years, maybe 50 years, and then they had a civil war. Um, and, and in this civil war, I, as a way of reminder, I told you the North rebelled against the South, and the rebels, the North, won. Okay, so they split apart. Well, guess what? Neither one of these kingdoms lasted very long. The Northern Kingdom lasted about 200 years, 300 years. The Southern Kingdom lasted another 150 years. So in 586, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, that southern kingdom, was completely destroyed uh, as part of God's judgment. A lot of these other prophets talk about that. In that year 586, that's when the crimes, the war crimes happen uh, that we're about to read about here in verses 10 through 14. We know exactly the date when those things happened. And so what is it that happened? What is it that happened? When did this happen? 586, listen to verses 10 through 14, and let's listen to what the Edomites did to their brother, to their relatives, when uh, when the Babylonians came to conquer. It says this, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother. In the day of his misfortune, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You notice how often that word day came up in there? Um, basically, God's saying, hey, Judah had a bad day. They went off. They were hauled away. The Babylonians came in and destroyed all their cities. They took away their wisest people, took them as slaves. They hauled them off into exile to use as slave labor elsewhere. And then uh, they destroyed, ended up destroying the temple. And guess what? Edom's kind of there on the sidelines, one of the neighboring nations. And what are they doing? They're cheering. In fact, they're seeing this whole thing as an opportunity. They're very opportunistic people, full of arrogance and pride and no regard for human life. What do we see them doing? Um, They actually are seeing these fleeing Hebrews, these fleeing Jewish people, and they're capturing them. And if they don't kill them, 
they're selling them off as slaves. Okay, so they're taking advantage of a bad situation. We also see that after the Babylonians kind of clear out, they go in and plunder all the wealth. They loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. They gather up whatever riches are left over and they say, what a great opportunity for us. And God says, you're forgetting something. Even though Judah's under judgment, they are my chosen people. And it's not right for you to treat them this way. They're your own brother. So when did this happen? Well, we know the crimes that Edom committed were in 586 B.C. or thereabouts when the people of Judah were getting hauled away. But Edom's judgment is coming in the future, according to Obadiah. One thing we know uh, about, you know, it says in the first uh, probably four verses, it says, you will be judged. And then all of a sudden in verse 6, it says, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. And so you might say, wait, is it about to happen or did it already happen? And this is one of the amazing things about the prophets. It's what we call the prophetic future tense uh, or the prophetic present tense even. The prophets talk about something like it's already happened, even though it hasn't happened yet. Because they are so certain that when God promises something will happen, that it will happen. And so Obadiah comes in here and he's, on the one hand, he's talking about what's will, what will happen. On the other hand, he's talking about it as if it's already happened because it's just as certain as if it will, will happen. And so what we do know, uh, is that, um, the nation of Edom actually ceased to exist about one or two hundred years later. There was a people group that came in and conquered them. It was the Nabataeans. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Came in, uh, and, and, and conquered them. And again, we have to say, why is this happening? Well, it's because of the, the brutality that Edom showed to the Israelites. This terrible brutality. We also see that God singles out, verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, saying, who will bring me down to the ground? They were so arrogant, they thought that no one could ever conquer them. Edom was conquered 100 or 200 years later. They ceased to exist as a nation. Uh, here's an interesting fact. In, in the New Testament, you have uh, King Herod. King Herod is the Idumean, um, and that's actually the, the Latin pronunciation of Edom. Um, Idumea was a region in the Roman Empire. So there's still some Edomites around at that point, but we know that by the end of the Roman Empire, there's no one who ever called themselves an Edomite again, as far as we know. And so they ceased to exist completely. It took a couple hundred years, uh, but God's word did come true. And so where did this happen? This kind of brings us to the next question. Where did this happen? I want to show you a, a couple pictures. And again, this is, if you want to know the physical location of where Edom lived, it's actually in modern day Jordan. I don't know how many of you have traveled to the Middle East, have ever seen uh, the rock fortress of Petra. Uh, this is actually just to give you a picture of what God's talking about in those early verses here where he says, you are arrogant, you dwell among the rocks like an eagle, you think nobody can bring you down. And then he says, I will bring you down. I want to show you a picture of what what their cliff dwellings looked like. And some of the carvings that you're going to see, uh, some of these were made famous by Indiana Jones, I believe. Uh, but the carvings you'll see were actually carved by the people who conquered the Edomites, the Nabataeans. But nonetheless, you'll see the, the large scale of where they lived. And so here's the first picture. They lived among the caves, and they really felt like they had an impenetrable fortress. Okay? Uh, here's another picture. See how high those are? Uh, again, when they say... Uh, who will bring me down to the ground? They felt like they were invincible. 
when they dwelt among these rocks. And here's the, the, the picture of Petra that you've probably seen in the movies. So this is where they lived. But where they committed their crimes was actually in Jerusalem. Where did this happen? Well, God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to throw you down. You will be destroyed just like any other nation. Who, what, when, where, that brings us to the question of why. You might say, well, the question is, why did they receive this judgment? Well, I think we've actually already covered that because we've talked about why God said they were guilty. So I really think the big question is, why did God give this message? Why did God give this message? Because a lot of times when God gives a warning or a judgment, it's, it's, it's just that. It's a warning. He's saying, I'm giving this warning to you, Israel, so that you turn to me and come to me. Next week, you'll see in the book of Jonah, God gives a warning to the people of Nineveh and says, repent and come to me. Well, this is a message of judgment about Edom, but it's not given to Edom. The Edomites never hear this. Okay, This is a message that God gives to his people about Edom. And so we have to say, what's the point? Why would God give this message? If the Edomites never are even going to hear about it, why would God give this message to his people? Well, see, we know when they receive judgment. Or it's going to be after the time of this book. But what we think, again, one of the things that we see in these last verses here in 19 through 21 is we believe that Obadiah is actually probably one of the exiles who was uh, hauled away or was resettled after the Edomites and Babylonians came in and destroyed everything. And so Obadiah is speaking to the people who are left over, the remnant, and he's saying, do you remember what happened to the Edomites? Well, guess what? God's going to take care of that. So why did God give this message? You know, if, the, if Obadiah is talking about the Edomites and he's mentioning all these things to the exiles, to God's people, it'd be like them trying to recall their worst nightmares, right? The memories of the Edomites and what the Edomites did would be some of their worst nightmares. Coming in, killing their children in brutal ways, um, hauling their children, hauling their wives and or husbands off as slaves. It'd be hard to imagine anything worse than that as a human. And so when... God's people remember the Edomites. They have terrible memories. And Obadiah says, I want to give you a different reminder. A different reminder. I want to remind you two things about your God, about the character of God. And so what I want us to do now for the rest of our time here is just to focus in on these two things that I think Obadiah is trying to remind God's people of. And the first reminder is this. If you read the book of Obadiah, you cannot miss the fact that God, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel is powerful. The Lord is powerful. See, the Lord God is powerful and he controls the course of human history. If you're one of the Israelites and you've been hauled away into another land or you've been resettled in another city, like we think Obadiah was, you might be saying, Man, I guess our God's really not that powerful. He couldn't take care of us. And yet Obadiah gives this message to remind God's people that God is powerful. And that's not new to Obadiah. Flip over to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. This is one of the major points that God emphasizes throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But especially in the book of Psalms, he reminds his people over and over again, don't place your trust in people. Place your trust in God. 
Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's a good description of what the Edomites did uh, in the book of Obadiah. But look at verse 4, Psalm 2 verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. So basically God says, don't forget, even when things are going poorly, God is in control. God is powerful. Another psalm, Psalm 46. Psalm 46 begins with, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. But if you read through that psalm and you get to verse 10, this is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Psalm 46, verse 10, it says, be still and know that I am God. It doesn't say be still and know that Marcus is God or that fill in your name is God or that president or king or prime minister is God. It says, be still and know that I am God. In fact, I want us to do this together, okay? Uh, I want us to actually say these words together, if we will, okay? So uh, let's say that verse, Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I couldn't hear you because your mask were muffling it, but it, I think you said the right words, okay? No. Good job. Um, it's a good reminder. That's actually something we need to say to ourselves over and over again. Because as humans, we start worrying about things and we wonder and we forget that God's powerful. And God says, I want you to remember that I am God. What does that mean? I think that means don't trust in politicians, don't trust in, in rulers, don't trust in the economy. Trust in God. He alone can save you. Be still. And know that I am God. Don't forget that God is powerful. You are free to flourish. You're free to grow and multiply under any circumstance. Because God is powerful. Even if we were to face persecution, God says, you are still free to follow me no matter what happens. Because I am all powerful. So that's reminder number one. Reminder number two is that the Lord is faithful. The Lord is powerful and the Lord is faithful. We see both of those things in the book of Obadiah. Let me read to you verses 19 through 21. This is after it's kind of described the destruction. Um, But look at verse 19. It says, Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall fall, shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You might hear those words and say, that sounds like a bunch of different towns. I don't really know them. (laughs) I don't even know where those places are. But let me tell you what the bottom line is. God's listing off the different neighborhoods, the different villages, the different cities. And he says, I'm going to restore those to my people. But I love the ending of the last verse. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. In our English Bibles, that's the final word is the Lord's. Yahweh, Jehovah. There's hope, God says. I'm going to bring restoration because I'm faithful. 
I'm faithful to do that. There's a contrast. I don't know if you noticed earlier in the chapter. It was talking about Mount Esau, how those people dwelled high on the crags. They're so proud of themselves. And God says, I'm going to bring you low. But then we see this other mountain in verse 21, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city where Jesus was actually killed, where God brought salvation to all people, to anyone who will trust in him. So there's a contrast. That pride leads to destruction. But Mount Mount Zion, Jerusalem, God will provide salvation to any who humbly come to him. So God is faithful, faithful to establish justice. We see him saying to these Edomites, um, verse 15, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. We see that God says, I am faithful to provide justice for my people. You know, what does that mean for us? I think that means for us when we're wronged, when we face injustice, when we see injustice, things that we experience that are unjust, we can forgive. We don't have to hold a grudge. In the words of Jesus, uh, Matthew five forty three, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because you know God is bringing justice, you can do as 1 Peter 3, 9 says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. God is faithful to establish justice and we can trust him. We don't have to seek vengeance or have to try to get even because God is the one who's going to make all things right. He's faithful to fulfill his promises. We see that here at the end of this book of Obadiah. He says, I've made promises to give you a land and a place to dwell, and I'm going to keep those promises. And he's done that, and he will do that. Psalm 89, uh, if you get a chance to look at this later, God says uh, in verse 30, if my sons, if, if Israel forsakes my law and does not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and they fail to keep my commands, then I will punish their sin with a rod and the iniquity with flogging. That's what his people experienced in 586 B.C. They were hauled away because they rejected again and again and again his invitation. But verse 33, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. So God says, I am faithful to keep my promises. And some of us, what that means for us is we can trust in him. And some of you might be sitting here this morning looking at that and you're saying, well, I know God is powerful, but it sure didn't feel like it when I got diagnosed with cancer or when my wife left me. Or when my husband died. Or fill in the blank with whatever disaster you faced. You say, God's powerful, but it sure didn't feel like it when this happened to me. Or he might be powerful, but he wasn't faithful to show that power to me. It's easy to believe that God is either powerful and not loving. Or that he's loving, but he's not really quite powerful enough to show us his love. But God says in Obadiah, I am both powerful and faithful. And no matter what you're going through this morning, what trial you're up against, know that you have a powerful God who fulfills his promises for you. And he's not only faithful to establish justice, faithful to keep his promises, but the most important promise he makes to us is that he will provide restoration and forgiveness of sins. And that's what we celebrated earlier. He provides physical restoration here in the book of Obadiah. He says, I'm going to return you to your land, which he does. 
But even more than that, that's a picture of the spiritual restoration he provides for anyone who places their faith in him, who says to him, I trust that you've forgiven my sins through Jesus Christ. And he provides forgiveness through that. You know, there's one passage. We, we, we read some verses from Genesis. I actually want to go all the way to the end of Scripture now. So we're going from Genesis to Revelation today. Uh, in Revelation, we have kind of a similar situation to Obadiah. God's announcing to the peoples. Uh, he said, I've been patient with you. I've given you chance after chance to repent. But now judgment is going to fall on you. And so at the end of chapter 6, it talks about this judgment that's going to fall on all the people who like Edom reject God. Uh, in fact, back to Obadiah, verse 15, it says, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, not just on Edom, but to all those nations who reject God. So you come to Revelation, and here's what it says in verse 17. Uh, it's talking about the wrath of God, and it says, for great is the day of their wrath. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And so if you read the book of Revelation, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one can stand in front of the wrath of God. Edom didn't stand. They fell. All the other nations fall. Any nation that's under God's judgment is guaranteed to fall. But skip ahead to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is talking. John gets a vision of those who've been saved by Jesus through faith in Christ. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Did you notice who's standing? It's those who've been saved by the lamb. And so the same message that Obadiah gives to his people, the people of his day, is the message that God gives to us today. He says, I am faithful to provide forgiveness and salvation and eternal life for you. One more verse from Revelation, verse chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Brothers and sisters, that's the message of Obadiah. The Lord is powerful and the Lord is faithful. And he gives us that message through this short little book. But don't ever forget those two things. And I don't know why you need to hear that message this morning, but I'm confident that God does. I know I needed to hear it. And so I pray that God takes that message and uses it in your heart today. Let's bow it for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Obadiah, your servant. God, I pray that we would be your servants, that we would multiply your love to many, many people. God, thank you for Trinity Church. Use us as we go and make disciples of all nations. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you will stand, and I'm going to give you a benediction, and then you'll be dismissed. So these are the words from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.